Good morning. It's good to see everyone today. It's uh, my privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you today. So with that in mind, we've been studying through the, the book of Acts. So if you wouldn't mind, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Some of you already know, there's some of you who probably don't, but uh, my wife and I have a daughter who, along with her husband and Two children live in Asia at the moment, so we don't get to see them very often. But fortunately, thanks to the internet and particularly FaceTime, we get to see them on a regular, pretty regular basis. Pretty often my phone rings and I pick it up and I look at it and I, oh, it's FaceTime. It's from my daughter. But when I click on it, it's not my daughter. It's one of my two grandchildren. And the reason they're calling me is because they want to show their poppy, that's me, their newest badge of honor. And what is that badge of honor? It's their newest skinned elbow, smashed toe, goose egg, earned at the expense of being hard-playing children. So why... Do they want to show me that? It's because they know that I am going to be so proud of them and I'm going to say, oh, that's awesome, that's so cool. And they're going to grin from ear to ear. So today we're going to continue looking at the missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And I want want us to focus in on some of the things that earn us or can earn us a badge of honor, and how we should wear that. Last week we looked at chapter 13, and at the very end of the chapter we see Paul and Barnabas as they're being driven out of Antioch. You remember that? Now I want to clarify this. They weren't being driven out in a chauffeur-driven limousine, right? No. They were being driven out or chased out by an angry mob, probably with sticks and stones, chasing them out of the city. Now, so as they're being driven out of town, they head for Iconium, which is where chapter 14 begins. But the amazing thing, which is important that we don't overlook, is the attitude they have when they're being driven out of Antioch. Verse 52, the last verse in chapter 13, which I think really sets the tone for chapter 14. Okay, you ready? Here it is. And the disciples, they're just being persecuted, chased out of town, and the disciples were filled with joy. Filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Are you even serious? How can they have this kind of attitude under the circumstances? Can you imagine if you have your dream job? Everything is going perfect. And all of a sudden, one day, your boss walks in and says, "Uh, you're done here. Pack your bags, security stand at the door, and they will walk you to your car. You wouldn't be filled with joy. You wouldn't be going, yay. You wouldn't be doing the happy dance. No, no, you'd be devastated, wouldn't you? Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas have their dream job. They're doing what they love to do, and that is... Tell people about Jesus. Yet, when they get chased out of town, they're filled with joy? How can this be? Well, 
hopefully as we go through this passage, you'll begin to understand how even during persecution, we can be filled with joy. But for now, let's, let's go ahead and start reading. Follow along with me as I read. Uh, Acts chapter 14, let's start at verse 1. Now, at Iconium, this is the new city, they've just been chased out of Antioch, they arrive in Iconium. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Are you seeing a pattern here? You go into a new town and just like Antioch, in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas, what do they do? The first thing they do is they start telling people about Jesus. And what is the result? Well, just like in every other town, some believe and some don't. Verse 4 tells us that the city was divisive, divided. And the first point I want to make today is the gospel is divisive. Let me tell you, whether we realize it or not, the gospel is divisive. Talking about division, I, I often wonder why people would want to go into politics. I mean, it's so divisive, isn't it? Like, I, I, On one hand, I understand because they want to make a difference, but I see one party coming up with a great idea and the other party, the opposing party, will, will come up with a totally different idea, even if it makes absolutely no sense, just so they don't have to agree with this party, right? It's crazy. But can I say that the gospel is even more divisive than politics? You don't believe me? Look what Jesus himself says. He says, do you think that I have come to bring peace to the world? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What? Didn't the angels sing at Jesus' birth, glory to God on the highest on earth, peace and goodwill to men? Hmm. Yes. And Jesus did come to earth to bring peace, but that peace is between man and God. Because God, we all as sinners deserve the wrath of God as punishment for our sins. But Jesus says, I will come. I will bridge that gap. I will pay for your sins to everyone who will trust in me. And that will bring peace between you and God. So where does the division, the enmity, the sword come in? My friends, there's a colossal spiritual battle raging all around us that many of us are not even aware of. Possibly because we're not in the battle. We're, we're, we're on the sidelines. We're not involved. 
but it's a battle where the power of the enemy, Satan, and all his forces, they're at work, and they will stop at absolutely nothing to curtail the advancement of the gospel. We saw it last week. Do you remember last week? If you were here, you will remember how the false prophet barred Jesus. Do you remember that? Where Paul looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making the crooked, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Uh, That's pretty straightforward, right? You can see some division going on there, right? And here we have it again where the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against Paul and Barnabas. Poisoned their minds. Why? Because Paul and Barnabas are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you what, folks. That's totally contrary to the ways of the world. It is divisive in that Satan is in jeopardy of losing souls, and he will do whatever he can to maintain a dark and evil grasp on the souls of all mankind in his attempt to keep them from hearing and understanding and believing the truth. So what happens? The people of the town plan to bring physical violence on the two apostles. They plan to stone them a method where people would gather around their victim and hurl rocks and stones at at them until they were dead. But thankfully, Paul and Barnabas, they get word of it. Someone tips them off and they flee the city. They're out of there. Now, you might be thinking at this point in time, Paul and his band of merry men should just pack up their things and head for home, right? Right? After all, is it really worth all this trouble? Is this message they are preaching really worth losing their lives over? Well, apparently they think it is because off they go to the next two cities on their journey. Let's keep reading. Follow along uh, verse 8. Now at Lystra, this is the next town they're going to, and at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Okay, new town, new people, new circumstances, new situation, But doesn't this sound like a story we already had before? Remember in Acts 3, where Peter heals a man who had been lame from birth, right? There's a new message to be told. It's about Jesus Christ. And God gave the apostles the power to be able to do miraculous things, probably for two reasons. Number one, to give off this authenticity to what they're saying. In other words, guys, I'm speaking... On behalf of God, I'm, I've got a message from God. And just so that you know, I'm going to do these miraculous signs. And the second reason is probably just to get people's attention, right? Now, what do you think? Is this going to get some attention? 
There are people sitting around listening to Paul, probably just, as far as they're concerned, he's babbling on, you know what I mean? It's like, hey, he's talking about this God who, and Jesus, and it's like, yeah, what is he even talking about? We have our gods. We got Jupiter and Zeus and Hermes, and they're our gods. Among them is this grown man who had never, underline the word, never walked. If any of you have ever been in an accident, a car wreck or something, or, or you, maybe you know somebody who has and have been laid up for a couple months, you know that when, when, you're, when your bones heal or whatever and it's time to start walking again, you, it literally, you've got to learn to walk all over again. Somebody's got to help you up. They've got to, you, your, your muscles are, are basically gone. Your sense of balance is skewed. You have to start out between the balance bars just so you don't fall. But here's this lifelong cripple who doesn't get up gingerly so no one helps him. He springs to his feet, it says, and starts walking immediately at Paul's command. And at this point, I bet you there's still, there's not a person who is sitting there bored and listening to Paul. No, no, they are all on their feet and they're like, whoa, did, 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 did you just see what I saw? Look at this guy. We all know him. He has never walked. And they are all amazed. And in their amazement, let's see what, what they do. Verse 11, let's keep going here. Verse 11, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, in another language, right? Their local dialect. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowds. Now, Paul is probably, he's probably had been speaking to everybody in Greek, which was the common trade language of the day. Everyone would have understood and known Greek. But in their excitement, in the people's excitement, they revert back to their local dialect and start speaking Lyconian to each other as they're all so excited about what they just witnessed. And for a time, Paul and Barnabas are clueless to what is even going on. In fact, it never even dawned on them that the people thought they were gods until the priest of Zeus appears with cattle and flowers and attempts to offer sacrifices to them in honor of their being deities or in honor of them being gods. Do you remember what happened to King Herod in Acts 12? We we looked at that two weeks ago when the people shouted to him, it's the voice of a god and not of a man. And Herod's like, yeah, that's me. Do you remember what happened to him? God struck him down and he was eaten up with worms and he died. Hmm, nice story. So let's see what happens in response of our two friends when they realize that the people are lifting them up and putting them on pedestals as gods. Verse 14 Verse 14, and it says, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, we, why are you doing these things? We are men of like nature with you. You see, 
They are grieved that the people would even think they were gods. Um, for that matter of fact, even, even important people were of like nature, just like you, they said. They ripped their clothes, a sign of distraught. And like, no, don't do this. No, we're not gods. Trying to stop the people from sacrificing to them. But guess what? They have the attention of the crowd, the attention of the whole city. And rather than accepting the praise of the people like Herod did, they use this opportunity to turn the focus on the true and living God. They use this opportunity to share about who Jesus Christ really is. Let's keep going. The apostles are still talking to the people and they say in verse 15, we'll start halfway through verse 15, we also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, we allowed all, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. I told you that there were similarities between the healing of the lame man in Acts 3 and the healing of this lame man that we're talking about today. The main similarity, of course, is the healing itself of a man who had been lame from birth. But I want you to focus in on the second similarity, and that is that in both instances, both Peter in Acts 3, Paul in Acts 14, they use the incident to point people to Jesus Christ. But here's where the difference lies. In Acts 3, in that healing, the crowd who witnessed the event were Jewish. They knew the Old Testament and how God had promised to send a Savior, a Messiah. So on that occasion, Peter took what they knew of the Scriptures and he says, okay, let me tell you about the Scriptures. And now that points to Jesus. And he used that to point them to who Jesus was, the true Messiah. In this event, the audience are Gentiles. They didn't know the Old Testament. They didn't know the Scriptures. So what Paul does in this setting is he takes what they know. They know about nature. They know that they need the rain and the rain comes and that when the rain comes, their crops grow and they're satisfied. He points them to nature, something they know and uses that to point them to the living God. This is how Paul makes the argument in Romans chapter one about people who are making an excuse for not acknowledging God. He says, there's really no excuse. Okay, you may not know who the living God is, but there is no excuse. Here's what he says. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul is basically saying, okay, Everyone, we try to make, if we don't want to acknowledge God, we try to make excuses and say, well, there is no God. But he says, you know, Paul says, no, you just look at nature itself. You've got to know there's a divine being. Let me tell you who he is. So what's the point here? Actually, there are two, which are 
points two and three in our study, and they kind of go hand in hand with each other. So I'm going to go through both of them together. Point number two is know your audience. Know your audience. And number three is the gospel always points to Christ. So as Peter took the Jewish Jews' knowledge of Scripture and used it to point his audience to Christ, Paul, on the other hand, knew that if he started talking about the Old Testament fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the prophets, Moses, and Samuel, his audience wouldn't have a clue what he was talking about. No, he's like, what, what is he even... Who is he talking about? So he started with something they knew, nature. And he used that to point them to Jesus. So know your audience. Know your audience and then use whatever you can that they know to turn it, the conversation, and point it to Jesus. Because the gospel always points to Jesus. The good news always points to Jesus. Now, one would suppose that after all this, that everyone, they'd be like, oh, we get it. We saw the miracle. Oh, yeah. And you would think everyone would turn in mass and believe. But remember what I said earlier? The gospel is what? Divisive. The gospel is divisive. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith in him is divisive. Satan will do all in his power to stop it from going forward. Look what happens in verses 19 and 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Okay, these are the two cities from which Paul and Barnabas had just got run out of where they were persecuted and they follow him there because they're going to cause trouble because guess what? Satan's behind their evil plot to stop the gospel from going forward. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds... They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? The crowds who were hailing Paul and Barnabas as our gods are now attempting to kill them. In fact, they believe they have succeeded in killing Paul. But apparently they had only rendered him unconscious because he comes to and the disciples who had gathered around him probably also thinking he was dead. All of a sudden he shakes his head and opens his eyes and they bring him back into the city and he survives to tell the tale. Well, we love a story that ends like that. You know what I mean, right? That uh, he survived under all circumstances. Great story. But what use is a story like this if we can't draw some conclusions for our own spiritual growth? So let's dig in here and see where we might put some of these lessons from this story into practice in our own lives. Let me ask you this. Let me start by asking you this question, right? Here we go. Who here wants to live a godly life? Now, I don't want to hear any amens. I don't want to see any raised hands. What I do want you to do here for the next few minutes is stop and contemplate what is the cost of living a godly life? Do I want to live a godly life? I think you would all agree that Paul 
as he traveled from city to city, was indeed living a godly life. Why? Because he was doing what God wanted him to do, and that is share the gospel, tell people about Jesus Christ. Some years later, Paul sits in prison awaiting his execution at the hands of the evil emperor Nero. And he writes the following to his spiritual son, Timothy. And he says this, he says, You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings at, that happened to me at Antioch, at Lyconium, Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them the Lord rescued me. You see, where, where he was... Paul is talking about Acts chapter 14. Later on, he's like, hey, remember what happened to me in Acts 14 at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? Remember how I was mistreated and all these things? But then he goes on in the next verse, verse 12, and he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Whoa. Whoa. Now, considering what Paul is saying here, are we going to be quick about raising our hand and saying, count me in, I desire to live a godly life, bring on the persecution, where is it? Something we have to think about, right? This is a serious battle we're ready to engage in, possibly. We didn't quite finish up reading chapter 14, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to. But if we did, right, we would see how Paul and Barnabas then traveled back through the same towns that they had already been in, the same towns where they had been persecuted, the same towns where people had trusted in Christ. And why did they do that? Why did they go back through the same towns they had already been in? Well, they did it to strengthen and encourage the ones who had received the message of, by faith in Jesus Christ. And what exactly is this encouraging message they had? What's the encouraging message they had for all the believers? Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that, and I put this up on the screen so you could hear. This is the encouraging message. You ready? You ready? That through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What? That was the encouraging message? What's so encouraging about that? It doesn't sound very encouraging, does it? Do you remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. My friends, we should consider suffering for the name of Christ a badge of honor. Something to be proud of. Can we take the same attitude as my two-year-old granddaughter who calls me up and says proudly, ow, ow, ow? 
So if Paul says that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, then the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Well, if I'm not feeling any pushback, if I'm not feeling any persecution or any ill will from the world, am I really living a godly life? And then we have to ask ourselves, so what is involved in living a godly life? It means... It means, my friends, it means we've got to stop being secret Christians. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, there are two quick things I want to draw from this. Number one, the purpose of letting your light shine is so that you can point people to Jesus. And I'm going to be real clear about this. We can't point people to Jesus unless we talk about him. If you're doing good things, just like Paul, when he healed the man, if he had just left of that and not pointed then to say, hey, but let me tell you about Jesus, everybody would have just continued to think that he was just a great man, right? In the same way, if we do good things, but, but stop before we tell people about Jesus, people will just put the praise on us, right? No, we've got to do those good things, but then point people to Jesus. Now, we know there's only one way to God the Father, and that's to Jesus Christ, but I'm going to suggest that there are many ways to bring people to Jesus And that has to start with knowing your audience. Just as Peter pointed people to Christ by explaining the scriptures his audience already knew, so Paul pointed his audience to Christ by talking about nature, something they already knew. Know your audience and look for ways to bring Jesus into the conversation to things that they already can relate to. For instance, let me give you an example of how I did this just recently. I was visiting with a young man, and he had he'd pretty much given up on life. He, he, says, he says, you know, I, I, I've decided I don't want to believe in God anymore. I, I'm just choosing to believe there is no God. And he says, there's, there's just no meaning in life. No meaning in life. No matter what you say. You know, I, I could have argued, oh, yes, there is. Yes, there is. You, there is a God. No. But rather than do that, I, I, I says, you know, how can I relate to this young man? And I says, you know what? There's, there's a book in the Bible where the author is struggling with the same thing. In fact, he says over and over repeatedly, meaningless, meaningless. All, everything is meaningless. I says, would you be really ready or willing to read that book? It's called Ecclesiastes. It's 12 short chapters. He says, yeah, I'll read that, and we'll talk about it. Of course, in that book, at the very end, which I knew, is the last few verses, the author concludes it by saying, uh-huh, without God, and I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but without God, life really is meaningless. And my point to this is, to this young man, is, is like, you've got to reconsider God, because without God, there really is no meaning. And then, of course, when you get them to realize that who God is, then you say, okay, now let me show you how you can get to God the Father. And it's through Jesus the Son. 
Now, that's just one example of saying, how can I relate to a person? How can I know my audience? And then how can I... But there's loads of ways. That's just one example. The bottom line is really this. However we go about it, our end goal should always be to point people to Jesus. The second thing we can draw from this is that if you let your light shine, if you make it a priority to share the good news of Jesus Christ, then two things are going to happen, right? If this is your prayer in life, two things are going to happen. Number one, you will bear fruit, right? Just as Paul and Barnabas, when they went into every city, they always bore fruit. People came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. If that's your priority in life, if you're always sharing the gospel, the Holy Spirit will work through you and you will bear fruit. But the second thing is, is you will face persecution. Paul promises this and even encourages us in this. Why? Because the gospel is divisive. It reminds people of their sinful state and their need for a savior and Satan will use every method available to him to keep the good news from spreading. Not long ago, I had a lady literally go off on me. She cursed me up one side and down the other. She says, I hope you die and burn forever in hell. Now, you might think that this was pretty upsetting to me, but on the contrary, in a strange kind of way, I found it kind of fulfilling. <laughs> Why? Because I remembered the words of Jesus, which I quoted earlier, when he said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Do you want to avoid persecution? Do you want to avoid ridicule? Do you want to avoid people thinking you are different? Then keep your worship confined within the walls of the church building. Don't pray with anyone when you're out in public. Don't dare pray when you're at a restaurant before a meal. Don't let your light shine at all when you're out in public. If you're a Christian, you are different. You're supposed to be different, but don't let anybody know it. <laughs> On the other hand, there is an immense joy to be had when we choose to suffer for the name of Christ. We can wear that with a badge of honor. Paul's badge of honor something he was not ashamed of, something that he was proud of. He tells us about his badge of honor in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look how he says this proudly. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes last one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, da robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many sleep, a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Proud that I was able to do that for the name of Christ. That's my badge of honor, Paul was saying. Let me close with the verse we started with in chapter 13, 
verse 52, after being persecuted and run out of the cities, it says, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they chose to suffer for the name of Christ and wore that suffering as a badge of honor. The question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, am I ready to get in the battle if you're not in it already? Am I willing to put myself out there and experience the same? And am I willing to wear that as a badge of honor no matter what happens? Let's pray.